Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. I just got back from crewing and pacing Leah Yingling to a ninth place finish at this year's Western States over the weekend. So I wanted to dedicate the show to sharing some of my experience of what it was like to be in the middle of the elite women's field and to just recap the day in general. To help me do that, I enlisted the help of previous podcast, Matt Seidel, who was bouncing around the course all day, helping out with the live stream and chasing the race leaders while dressed in a full banana suit. But before I bring Matt on, I want to take a quick minute to remind you guys that registration is now live for our 2024 Blister Summit. From February 4th through the 8th, we'll be hosting a series of summit events in our hometown of Mount Crest of Butte, Colorado. Expect a bunch of on-snow activities and demo opportunities from industry-leading brands, panel sessions with company founders and professional athletes, daily restorative yoga, a bevy of food and drink options, and a whole lot more. For more info on what to expect and how to register, check out the link in the show notes. All right. And finally, I also want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or review after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay. Let's get right into my chat with Matt. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Matt Squared. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to have you on because we both just got back from Western States weekend. And I thought we'd kind of go through our days and and break down what happened. We were both out on the course for the entire day. Saw two sunrises. Yeah. What like, let's get into it. What a race. Yeah. It's an experience, I think is a better term. It's for anyone that has not attended. It is truly to not be too cliche, like a little bit of a life-changing moment just to experience the like raw human emotion at stakes. Yeah. So, where did your day start? When did it start is probably a better way of asking that. Well, technically, it started at like three in the morning, getting up to the alarm. Um, I had kind of quick rundown of my day. Uh, I was helping out with the live stream of the start. For those that don't know, starting line is at Palisades Tahoe. This there's a what rifle or uh, they shot off a giant gun at the start at 5 a.m. The runners run up the escarpment, which is a three and a half mile, 2,500 foot climb up to the top of Palisades Tahoe. Um, so I was the follow cam for the top runners all the way up there, then came back down, was kind of bouncing around eight stations, kind of watching. I was supposed to pace one of the top Hoka athletes, but he unfortunately had to withdraw at Michigan Bluff, which is mile 55. So instead, I just kind of hung out around the track, saw the top 10 women and men to finish. I believe the final person I actually saw before leaving was a person you were pacing, um, Leah, and then headed home, got some sleep, woke up the next morning, came back to the track, experienced the glory that is golden hour. And yeah, gosh, it's really, it's a two day event. Yeah, it really yourself, is. Man. Um, oh yeah. My, my day started probably around the same time as yours. Um, I was up there pacing and crewing Leah Yingling, um, who I had the privilege of, of supporting last year and helped run her into F6 last year. Uh, and I was telling people like it felt like deja vu because the day kind of played out in a very similar fashion. Like we we had our crew so dialed and like our aid station protocol so dialed in that it was like 
yeah, felt like formulaic at that point. Um, and then I, mm-hmm. I paced the same section I did last year from uh, Greengate to Pointed Rocks, which is miles, like essentially 80 to 95 of the race. Uh, it was rad. It was like right when the sun was going down. Um, and I think we ran like almost exactly the t- same splits for that section, which is like quite fast. Like Leah has a reputation for kind of like closing like a freight train. Um, Corinne and Dylan who are doing the live broadcast, I think at one point called her the Grim Reaper, which is uh, (laughs) very apt. So when I did that section last year, I think we passed, we moved from like ninth place into sixth place, I think, and then secured sixth place, which happened to be the first um, American female finisher uh and this year we i picked her up she was in ninth place had just moved into ninth place after the river crossing and probably had like a 20 minute gap between priscilla who was in eighth place at the time and by the time i dropped her off that we had worked our way into like a five minute gap maybe so she was moving uh and like pacing Leah is so easy because like she is so good at kind of controlling her output and like naturally knowing when to push that all I had to do was like tell her to eat every 25 minutes, which like you'd think would be easy. But for someone who's like stomach isn't, you know, feeling great after eating sugar for like 15 hours, <laughs> sometimes you need, yeah. they need a little bit of convincing. Um, but yeah, she like ate like a champ and... uh delivered her to her husband mike and mike took her the last six miles and then we all kind of like finished on the track together and uh luckily this year she didn't get pulled for drug testing which requires like a urine sample because last year we finished around like 11 or so 11 p.m and i was like oh rad like i'll be in bed by midnight and get like a good night's Mm -hmm. sleep before going back to the track for golden hour but it took her like two and a half hours to to give to provide a sample for the the drug testers um so we were hanging out there pretty late but um yeah this year this year no problem at one point she like had to pee when i was pacing her i was like leah no save it for the track (laughs) Uh, but yeah pretty insane man like it's it's an experience that like every time i i leave auburn i'm like man i gotta figure out a way to like run this race at some point it's it's for me it was getting i mean i'm aware of all the golden ticket races for last year in the qualifiers but it's like as soon as the race was over like okay like writing out my training plan like i need to like be in the best shape possible to like get a ticket at the next race i do because that experience was something else and i think what i appreciate about it i don't don't want to descend yeah like too cliche like everyone talks about western states it's like the hundred mile race but it's kind of you have two different facets to it to me there is the it's an insane elite like competitive race like the most stacked field like looking at the entrance lists like you could go 25 30 deep on each gender like okay this person genuinely stands a chance of podium or top 10 but the flip side of it is um it's, it's kind of funny even the scene when like leo was finishing um like still a lot of people there but 
you come back the next day for golden hour, which is the, for those that don't know, the final hour of the race before the cutoff. And you have crowds that are 10 times as large as they were for the top 10 just out there supporting their runners. I really like how they do the awards so many right after. So it kind of forces all the elites to come back, but I think they'd choose to come back even if it wasn't that the case, because the experience of cheering people in, like someone finished at 29, 59, like 40, and like everyone was crowding around the final straight, like screaming their heads off, just trying to get that person across the line. And I think it was Lucy Bartholomew's father who finished at 30 hours and two minutes and the scene of him hunched over, just like struggling, didn't actually qualify or get an official finish, doesn't get the buckle, but still had like the law and appraisal, even the announcer, just like you still showed that you could run a hundred miles. And it's not an easy cutoff for a hundred mile race with that much difficulty. That anyone who does a hundred mile race deserves praise, but like particularly states like for the amount of elevation, the amount of heat you have to go through the amount of obstacles to finish in 30 hours time is a feat in and of itself. And just kind of seeing that human experience on display is. Yeah. I think I've said on the show before that it's like, to me, the greatest moment in like all of sports golden hour is because it's just like you see literally everyone that has run the race and everyone that has supported the race gathered in this like high school track. Uh, almost everyone probably hasn't slept all that well, like if at all. And it's just like a demonstration of like pure grit and like endurance and community really. And I think that's like, oh. that's what it is. It's all about the community. Yeah. And I think, almost the golden hour fishers in many ways deserve more praise. Cause you look at someone like Tom or Courtney this year, like they're on their feet for 14 and a half, 15 and a half hours, still a lot of time, but the golden hour finishers have been moving since the start. Like they've been out there for 30 hours. So to have the mental and physical fortitude to just keep going and is just kind of insane to watch. Yeah. Like leading up to the race, I think people were like, oh man, it's going to be like the hottest year ever and there's still so much snow that times are going to be pretty slow. That did not turn out to be the case at all. We saw like the women's course record get absolutely like blown out of the water. Granted, it's Courtney. So, it's like, you know, just another level. Uh, But even like, you know, Leah ran 45 minutes faster than last year pretty much and the women's race like from third place to like ninth place yeah they finished all sub 18 which is like insanely impressive um i was a little bummed because the time gap between i think like fourth or fifth place and then ninth place where leah finished was like nine minutes and each place was Mm -hmm. separated by like three minutes and i was like man like if this race was two miles longer we could have moved up into like just off the podium yeah, it's and I think I appreciate seeing that small of a time gap because it makes you appreciate the art of the I think aid station transition, if nothing else. I think a lot of people can think, oh, it's a 16, 17, 18, 30 hour race, what have you. Like you can take a minute or two to sit down, like relax, get some ice when I have you not. It's like no, like the people who are pushing for these top ten podium spots like are so dialed in. I think that was maybe my biggest takeaway throughout the day was the just amount of insane crew prep that each crew yeah. did um, is just on another level. Uh, totally. Those seconds count yeah. when you add them up over time. I went for a run with uh, Corinne Malcolm earlier this morning and one of her athletes that she coaches, Jeff Colt, who finished, I think like eighth or ninth? Eighth. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Apparently he had like 
16 minutes in total in aid stations, which is like wow. so fast. I think last year Leah had like 22 and I'm not sure if we cut any time off of that, but it felt like it felt like she was just in and out. Like, you know, wasn't sitting down, changed her shoes like once I think and her socks once, but uh, it really is about like that aid station transition because that's also when like mentally people kind of quit once they sit down in that chair it's uh oh yeah it it's almost takes a heroic effort sometimes to get them out of it yeah i mean i can speak from my experience in racing is i don't sit down in the middle of the race because i know if i sit down i'm not going to want to get up so what, whatever i have it's like just put it on me i think a maybe an inspiration of who i saw someone doing this was like a tyler green in many ways if i look at the elite fields across both races i feel like leah and tyler's games are very similar that they just are consummate professionals who are like dialed in and what they need, no one to control their effort and watching him go through Forest Hill in particular, that's the mile 62 aid station, just the amount of precision in his cooling strategy is he had like a towel put on him. He had ice shoved in every sleeve and vest that he had. He was drinking certain things and it, there was 20 things that happened, but he was only in there for about a minute and he was out. And also the Nike team that was assembled for him was out of this world. I don't know if you were at Forest Hill when he came through or if you were still at Michigan Bluff because I knew you were hanging out there, but the Nike posse that was put together. And I think Nike was able to get every brand or team that was out there this year if it like stepped up their game, even compared to last year. It just was a spectacle to behold. Yeah. I think I was still at Michigan Bluff, but uh, can you like briefly describe like Forest Hill because it's kind of a landmark uh, aid station area in the on the course and it's often said that like the race doesn't start until people pass through there oh yeah so for yeah forest hill is mile 62 of the 100 mile race which in many ways is very fitting to the race because you've run 100 kilometers by the time you've gotten there so you have been on your feet for however long it's taking you to get there but and coming out of forest hill you have a nice sustained like 10 mile downhill along the Cal street aid station. So from the strategy of the race perspective, it's kind of a significant point of when people get out of there, they are moving from a logistical standpoint. Forest Hill is a tiny little town off just South of highway 80, um, maybe has about a thousand people or 2000. I don't know the actual number, but it is about a, this long continuous one street downtown right next to the highway or forest Hill road. And it is, lined with people for the western states i am not trying to exaggerate but i would guess thousands plus people lining the streets of this town all for the race um kind of uh, unlike maybe other aid stations which are very compact i know uh, robinson flat which we were at together mile 30 is very like out in the middle of the country like you have to take a shuttle to get there it's very cramped it's a narrow stretch forest hill is a wide open maybe half mile stretch where you can set up and crew anyone along that entire area and there's actually like a small portion before the official aid station which is at a high school or the local high school and then you have maybe like four blocks of downtown with shops and whatnot with people just lining with chairs tents and everything and literally every brand that had elite athletes competing had like a tent with giveaways out there music Music flaring. Um, I know Skip with Hillsborough Granite Company was out there handing out beers to people. Um, it's just, it's a scene. Um, it's very, and it's very fun from the crew perspective because there's 
lots of aid stations you can go to, but kind of there are definitely a few that are the main ones people visit due to just accessibility. Um, and really after Robinson Flat, which is mile 30, there's not a very easy to get to aid station except for maybe Michigan Bluff. But even that's only six miles away from Forest Hill. So everyone who's crewing tends to just head straight there and you're it's a hundred mile race. So you're waiting for your run for a while. So it's an all day party is probably the best atmosphere I can describe for someone who's not running or pacing. You can just kind of hang out, socialize with people, take it all in. Um, as I said, like this year, um, in particular, it felt like brands were really trying to put themselves out there and kind of make it a scene they can show up at. So the Nike tent was handing away free shirts. I'm actually staring at mine right now that I have folded up on my bed. Um, they were giving away their new free trail shoes. Um, other brands were kind of, I know, Pit Viper was another yeah. one. They were like handing out free sunglasses. Uh, just really just a fun scene and hanging out all day, waiting for your runner to come through. And as a result, um, when the like top runners come through, it's just the most loudest, the loudest cheers you hear for a race because you have a thousand people lining the streets of this town, just screaming for you. Um, and you can technically run with your. I know Western states have lots of rules about pacing and crewing, and they're very particular. But the one thing I'm very fortunate to do is you can crew and run with your runner the entire stretch through Forest Hill, so it creates this really cool atmosphere of about a half mile stretch with cameras following people people shouting you have maybe one of the most unique scenes i saw was uh when rod farvard our visual friend ran through he had someone carrying an umbrella that was shading him the entire way very mary poppins-esque uh, just you you get some very interesting scenes uh, up there yeah it's pretty ridiculous it's like i don't know it it's a cool spot to just like convene and wait for the runners to come through because you get to like see them for quite some time which is nice you know there's other aid stations where they burst through a thicket of trees maybe like slug back a a goo and then then they're off and you don't really see them again whereas Mm -hmm. like you can really assess like who's running well who's kind of like not talking at all who's like smiling oh yeah um who looked in the best shape uh that you saw while you were there oh yeah and i think from the elite perspective kind of speak to a little bit usually whoever is in first at forest hill unless they blow up is in a really good position to win the race because as you as you mentioned touched on earlier there there's this colloquial saying the race doesn't start till forest hill some people would go as far to say the race doesn't start till the river um which is mile 80 some people i know i i consumed i think to summarize both of our sleep schedules the last few days i've consumed more single track podcasts than i have uh, hours of sleep because they interviewed all the elite runners before the race and they were talking about a lot and saying no the race actually starts at like rob's 30 it's a race you race from the get-go um but by the time you get to forest hill it's really time where the elite runners make their moves so in the men's field in particular um the top two runners came in together which was I think an, an, I was rewatching the live stream actually a little bit earlier today just to kind of look at some highlights. And I think Dylan was saying that he doesn't think there's ever been a recent race where the top two came in together. And those two runners were Tom Evans and Dakota Jones. Um, and they both at the moment looked really smooth. Um, obviously, Tom went on to have one of the best fat closing splits. Uh, I think one of the big storylines of this year was the weather in particular was cool by Western state standards. I think Western states is pretty notorious for having a vast majority of the day being spent in triple digit weather. You're just the, 
the most iconic images I can recall of the race are of ice vests, are of people draped in towels. It's maybe Jim's bucket hat from 2021, just getting as much shade as you can. It's a race that's not quite on bad water levels, but it's hot. And how the runners handle the heat, I think, really pay really pays dividends almost as much as their physical fitness. And you'll, you'll, you'll go on Strava the months before the race and see people logging their sauna sessions or what have you not, or, oh, I ran 10 miles on 10% grade in 100 degree heat to right. simulate the heat. Um, so I think heat plays a big role. Um, but Tom Evans came in, he looked smooth as can be. He looked very under control. Um, I know Dakota, I think watching the live stream, he actually got aid before the aid station. So he kind of ran by Tom um, and they ended up catching up together. However, it just, for whatever reason, Dakota had really pushed himself the first two thirds. And I think listening to an interview with Tom after the race, he talked about right out of Forest Hill, actually like putting a move to like, just like snap that string and like break the elastic and kind of that mental game of like pushing your competitor just enough. And listening to his post-race interview, it was like, I think it was a, he dropped a 554 mile either right before or right out of Forest Hill, which in the middle of a hundred mile race is stupid to think about, but yeah, that, so just watching those two duel was one of the coolest things I've witnessed in a race. I saw them at Michigan Bluff and they were still running together. I think we watched the same interview and I, something that stuck out to me was uh, when Tom talked about navigating the high country, which was pretty solidly like under snow for the most part for at least like it, what sounded like 10 miles. Um, there was a, a big pack of men uh, up front and he kind of like hung in the back of that pack and would let people in front of him uh, kind of like find the course like for him and like he would see what line they picked and see what line like someone else picked and like just follow the what made sense to him so he didn't he didn't get caught up in that that kind of like rhythm he didn't get caught up of like getting in a rhythm having to stop figure out which direction to go in and then like pick back up again and i thought that was just like a brilliant way to conserve energy um both mentally and physically but yeah that guy like man such an interesting athlete right like he has a history in the military i believe like in the welsh like special ops team um Mm -hmm. and i think he brings a lot of that like discipline and i'm sure like mental toughness to running and uh it's cool to see him have like success over here because i feel like not that he hasn't had success over here but like he's always been kind of on the podium and and not like got walked away with a title and uh now he's like i think the second only european to win western states yeah would killian be the only other yeah. one yeah. european and, men i'm sorry yeah. yeah yeah yes of course um i think one thing that i thought about in watching tom win just kind of looking at the pre-race hype there was this big which i think was still over like truly this race on the men's side in particular felt pretty wide open because the previous two, ch- there was going to be a new champion crown. No one running the race again had won. Uh, obviously, unfortunately, Adam Peterman got injured within the last few months and couldn't run. Jim has kind of seemed like he's seen all the days he needed to at States for now. So it was a kind of wide open men's field. And the underlining story was there's no clear favor. There's no one who screams out. And in hindsight, looking at Tom, it's like, no, he's always been yeah. of any of those athletes. I mean, 
Dakota would probably be the only other person from their resume that I could think of that would be. Yeah. Or I guess Hayden there. too. Like he he came in second. Yes. But yeah. Uh yeah. no, I think you're right. Like those three for sure. Did you do um the free trail fantasy? I did. I haven't even bothered to look at my score because it uh I d- did not turn yeah. out well. Yeah, I had Tom winning, so I feel confident about that. I had like Dakota in second though, and I think he fell all the way to seventeenth after after he kind of yeah. blew up a little bit. I, I had three of the top four correct. I just had them in the wrong order. I, I think I had Anthony winning, so he got third. I had Tom in third. I had Hayden getting second and then uh, Tyler Green in fourth. So That's another uh, cool storyline, though, is, is Anthony Costales, um, who's been on this yeah. show before, uh, towed the line without a sponsorship, which is, like, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it kind of is. Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at uh, the other, the men's and women's top 10, he's the only unsponsored athlete there. If like you look the men's and women's top 20, he's pretty much yeah. the only unsponsored athlete. Um, racing in his signature Chico State cross-country singlet, which is cool to see. Um, yeah, I have to imagine that that guy will get some type of contract after that performance. I think he, he probably had the resume before the race to get that and this only cements it. Yeah, I had, I mean, I had the chance fortunate chance to in his golden ticket at black canyon share maybe some of the guy also ran black canyon this year and i shared maybe miles 14 through 18 with him there right before the first big aid station and just watching the way he approached the race even from the pre-race prep he's kind of I, what i appreciate about him is he is he and tom i think are very undercover in a lot of their training but you know they're doing it they'll talk about it but uh, i think what they did notice they like put all their strava activities on private so you don't really know what they're yeah. doing behind the scenes they'll just casually put a long run on public all of a sudden it's like oh it's like a 25 miler with eight thousand feet of gain at yeah. altitude and it's he's crushing it's like okay this guy is lined up for something big so yeah it's fun to see um yeah the chico the chico state uniform is iconic i vividly remember running in college at meets when chico state was there and they'd always have their chico yeah i think he exudes that energy of kind of like running for his friends and his family yeah he's an awesome guy to watch compete he's also just like one of the purest competitors i think like listening to him talk he's like yeah i just want to beat those guys you know that's all he really thinks about um which is which is rad to see uh, let's talk a little bit more about, I mean, we kind of buried the lead with, with Courtney's CR. Like, what do you say to that? Like she ran 1529, right? Yeah. 1529, yes. which beat the previous course record by 78 minutes, which is from 2012 when Ellie Greenwood had that amazing run and I think like pretty cool temperatures, but Courtney finished six overall and a stat that like really stands out to me is she's now run Western States faster than Francois Dehain, Jeff Browning, Killian Jornet, Scott Jurek, and like a handful of other legendary men. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. What do you say to that? She is on unbra- the comment I saw is the like the unbreakable, one of the most iconic films about Western States is all the people chasing the record and like, she crushed that time yeah. this weekend and it's funny to see yeah you can't even it's well i said like on the men's side it's insanely competitive on the women's side going in it's like it's a race for second place like it's like is much i i think watching courtney do her thing is 
I, I was like in awe of it. Like it's the first time I've seen her race in person and truly and honestly, it was one of the coolest sporting feats I've ever seen. Like I, it's not just in ultra running, not just in running, like in terms of a sporting accomplishment, um, the level at which she approaches the sport and can just dominate. And yeah, she was picking off the men's top 10. Like they were standing still in the back half of the race and she did it all without a pacer, um, which I know Western States allows you to have pacers from mile 62 to the finish. She just did it all by herself and watching her just charge down from Roby point to the track and come around there was, you just can't help but be in awe of everything that she does um, to take Western States, which by many people's considerations is probably the most competitive deepest ultra race in the U S if not the world, I think obviously there's different races with different environments, but to take what many ultra runners take as their life's mission to do this race. Well, right. so you have everyone from a competitive standpoint choosing this as their target and to take the course record and just tear it to shreds smithereens and beat it by 80 minutes. I mean, I think in all of this, I think Katie Scheid deserves a ton of recognition right. for what she did. She had one of the all-time performances out there and also running under the course record. She just had the misfortune, not misfortune. I think everyone is in awe of Courtney, but of lining up next to, I, it's not a debate. She is the greatest yeah. ultra runner of all time on the women's side. There's just, you see that and you, right. you can't help, but. Yeah, no, this was very much like a race for a second, which I think like, that doesn't bother me, right? Like, no, it's still so cool to see. And Courtney just does such an impressive job of making running a hundred miles look so easy. And even though it's like very much not, and I think I listened to one interview with her uh, post race where she admitted that I think when she got to Greengate, she was like, "Oh, I don't feel so good." And like, just that kind of like insight into what she was dealing with just makes what she did like even that more impressive um yeah yeah really cool to see man yeah and she she talked about briefly again like that the pain cave got bigger this time around and so it's nice to know that underneath the surface like taking her word there like she experienced a mental low that she hadn't before or low is maybe the wrong word but hit that pain threshold and pushed it out further and yeah seeing the best runner push themselves and get even better is just right. the best thing you can witness in the sport. Yeah. And like, she really did honor the race by like, she had like a comfortable lead to put it mildly, but she didn't really let up at all. Like her splits or no. from, you know, the river to the finish are still like, I'm confident in saying without even confirming that they're like the fastest ever, uh, on the women's the, side. Yeah, the I guess you were crewing and getting ready to pace around the time Courtney was probably entering the finishing shoot. So yeah. I was tuning into the live stream a lot um, there, which is a whole other storyline of the live stream production, I think, across the board. And every race has gotten better. But this in particular felt good. But they were mentioning that Courtney's split from Forest Hill to Rucky Chucky River was the eighth fastest all time time. Yeah. Men or women. Like it's, you, you can't really appreciate what she's doing. Yeah. I think enough. it was like, I think it was like seven minutes slower than Tom Evans yeah. this year, which is silly. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about like the production though, because that is, you know, kind of 
more of a recent phenomenon, at least like within the past five or six years. Like we now have the the complete live stream and there's a few media outlets that really dedicate themselves to, to covering almost every aspect of the race this year, including like single track. Um, what do you, what do you think of all of that? Like what was your impressions uh, from last year to this year? Yeah. And I think this year, the amount of cameras they got trying to capture everything, I think Western States suffers from the challenge that a lot of other mountain races suffer from. Well, to call Western States the mountain races and 100% accurate, but which is you're in these remote locations with no cell service. How do you reliably provide um, live stream coverage of every inch? Like you have a race, like even last weekend, the, what comes to mind is the Broken Arrow Sky races were happening up in the same place. And I also had the fortune of helping out with that production for a little bit as a follow cam. And it's easier there because you're in one central location like as much as you have people scrambling around the whole area is right in front of you you can see the entire mountain western states is a point-to-point remote 100 mile race like to get coverage i think you'll you'll always have people who complain it's not better and i think when you compare it to a sport like like football basketball what have you where there's millions and millions and millions of dollars being dumped into production it's yeah it might not seem as good but from someone who's used to staring at a computer screen, like refreshing, looking for a single split two hours after the mine runner got to the last aid station to have the amount of follow cams they had through aid stations with just people holding gimbals, chasing runners up and down the street at Forest Hill to have the kind of, admittedly, still had some live cams up on like Lion or Red Star Ridge early in the race, just kind of seeing people go by, um, having drones covering every inch of the finish, having... um, I mean, I feel like two people that can't get enough credit is uh, Dylan and Corinne for sitting in studio for 20 hours and talking about running continuously, which is not an easy thing to do for 20 straight hours. Doing anything for 20 straight hours is hard Um, to keep to keep it engaging, to keep it fun. They cut to a lot of interviews. I know Zach Marion was out on the course throughout points, kind of providing insights. Um, They had. Commercial breaks. I think that's always a good sign that there's a little bit money, more money being dumped in the sport is when they have to like cut away from the broad stream to or broadcast to get something. Um, so across the board, it's really the only other race I think that I've seen have a similar amount of production was Black Canyon 100K earlier this year. And I know Aravipa had their production, which is why I'm really excited that they're covering the Hard Rock 100 in a few weeks now. Um, just people, organizations, programs who get together, get different entities involved and really create a spectacle that really highlights the competitive aspect of the race. Because I think it's really hard to appreciate these feats if you're not actually seeing them unfold in front of your eyes. Totally. It's another just great way to grow the sport too. But I saw like some criticism from like people in Europe that are like, well, like, you know, we have follow cams in all of our races in the Alps, et cetera, et cetera. But I think your point about the fact that like Western States runs through like wilderness areas where there's like no reception for dozens of miles at a time is is salient because like a lot of those European races are taking place in like villages and aren't actually that remote. Like even UTMB, like I wouldn't consider that like a wilderness race. Um, definitely a mountain race, but there's a lot of accessibility um, in terms of like internet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that that was really cool to see. I remember back in the day where I think the only way to really get 
like verified information on like splits and stuff was just like I run Far's Twitter account. And then before yeah. that, oh, just yeah. like some kind of shoddy like chip tracking system that like isn't always reliable. Like <laughs> Leah, my uh, the runner I was helping, um, her chip like wasn't working all that well. So we like couldn't really figure out where she was uh, on like the tracking system. And I know that was giving the live broadcast fits because they're like, where the hell is she? She's like not checking into these aid stations. Did she DNF? Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, so it might have been a little bit of an advantage on our our part, just flying under the radar, like quite literally. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, and it adds into the strategy of the race too um, from a perspective i know i was talking to some friends uh because the the runner who i was supposed to pace but had to drop i was kind of preparing to bring him from uh green gate which malleated to the finish and uh one of my buddies said hey bring your phone while you're pacing because i will like text you any updates as you go like essentially keeping you apprised as to when people are where and i think it's one thing to know what time someone's runs i think it's a whole other thing to get a visual on how they look because yeah. you can have someone like Dakota this year who like coming in, like flying, like he's in first, he's looking good. And then you maybe look at his face, can see the exhaustion and all of a sudden he comes flying backwards. And I think getting as, as much as it's a, uh, it's nice to see people. And I think the main purpose of the live stream is to broaden the sport to other spectators, but it's also can be used as a strategy piece. Like, Hey, this is where this other runner is. And this is how they're looking like you can throw a move in now and break them or, Hey, they're coming charging. We got to keep the pace hot. Like yeah, getting those little insights is a fun little edit. I heard that. Like, I think when Courtney finished, there was between like 15, to 18,000 people on like tuning into the YouTube live stream, which is nuts. Like Courtney has done yeah. so much for this sport just from a, a fan perspective. It's yeah. Mind boggling. She is definitely in my mind, the large, and at least in American ultra running, the largest name I can think of. I mean, we have the fortune of having a lot of really good, talented, fun athletes out there who deserve a ton of recognition, but she seems to break through the mold and granted with a resume like hers, but even more impressively the way she approaches each of these hard endeavors. Um, I mean, I was thinking to myself as I was driving back from Auburn last night, like at, at this point, every race that Courtney lines up for, like the question is not, is she going to win or not? The question is how much is she going to break the course record? But right. Because that's just the level that she approaches these races with. Or like, is she going to get in like into the men's podium position? Oh yeah. You know, like, like UTMB this she, year, which is in just a, a few short weeks. Like she could like theoretically be up there on the men's is podium. Is she running UTMB this year? Yeah. She's doubling. Well, and she's running hard rock. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. You're right. right. Uh, there I got, was some rumblings about her running UTMB. No, as well, you're, that's why I was, uh, I misspoke. You're right. Cause Leah is running UTMB. Um, mm -hmm. I got those two conflated. So anyway, still hard rock. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. same, same scenario, right? Like who knows? She could, she could pull that out. E like, I don't want to say easily, but it's, it, she's a threat. It's feasible. It's yeah. very much a possibility. Yeah. Uh, any other kind of like performances you want to shout out that stand out to you? There, there are too many to shout out. I'm trying to think in terms of people who I saw who just had really good performances from top to bottom. Um, I think 
even he was just outside of the men's top 10, but Rod Farver, yep. one of the most inspirational races I can think of. He, to think about the last year he's had, I mean, he had an extreme blow up at Western States last year. He had some good training and he had a pretty good UTMB for what he was expecting. And then um, to have his race in Thailand last year go pretty disastrously both for himself and his family um and then to suffer a ski injury not be able to run for like four months and then in the build-up to western states he ran the canyons 50k even got lost at that race and that was his only race before states and to go out and deliver a i don't know how many hour pr and six six hour pr and to pick off as many people it was just awe-inspiring to see um in person yeah he to, to go as far as he has. And I know that if he does gets his way into States again, he is verifiably a podium threat. Totally. Um, if not a top 10 threat for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, a little torn up just because he, he was just off of the, off of the, uh, 10th yeah. place kind of window. Um, yeah. Apparently he told me that, uh, when he got to Roby point, which is like, what like 1.3 miles from the finish something like yeah, that yeah a little over a mile yeah he was running with uh ludo and uh they like realized that they were in like 11th and 12th place and so they're just oh like we can kind of just cruise <laughs> we don't have to yeah. hammer down this like 1.3 mile stretch um and that's just like just kind of a a, a funny aspect of that race is that the top 10 get invited back um and it's just like such a coveted, coveted like position to be in. Um, yeah. So asking you a question about your future Western States endeavors, uh, where do you think you would want to try and get a ticket? Anywhere and anywhere. I think it doesn't matter. Uh, and yeah, coming off of this race, you can't help but not be inspired to want to experience it yourself. I think wherever the, opportunity arises that's always something i am shooting for personally um the i wouldn't say i have any particular race in mind but maybe another piece of analysis that i saw in this field um, was if you look at the top four finishers from black canyon this year they all got top 10 at western states so i think to see i think one of my big takeaways from this year uh as someone who also plays top 10 black canyon myself, like the level of competition that race in particular has brought to the table um, is kind of crazy to see. I mean, Anthony Casales win black canyon turns around, gets third. Tom Evans goes out there, gets second at black canyon. Suddenly he's the winner of Western States. Uh, Janish Kowalczyk. Um, I'd never really heard of him before black canyon. He's verifiably proven himself to be a elite runner by getting top 10 at states and then cole watson to get fourth at black canyon come back get his ticket at uh canyons less than two months later two months later and then show up and get ninth place after again just missing that podium um is inspiring to watch so that race in particular especially next year having three golden tickets which i know a lot of people saw that announcement like oh like what gives like i thought it's only supposed to be two tickets um but having experienced that race firsthand myself last year that race next year is going to be a barn burner again um so not necessarily that's where i will see myself going but that race i think is going to be one to watch in particular right it just it brings that level of competition yeah i think it's a really good like benchmark for a lot of people 
and uh, obviously very translatable. And I saw too that Aravipa, the race organization that puts on Black Canyon is, is going to pay for the entry fees for people that get golden tickets because that's something I didn't realize was that like if you are within the top 10 and you're you're invited back to western states like you still have to pay like and i think it's like close to 500 bucks yeah yeah they they talked about that a lot after black canyon when anthony won because they brought up the brig hype about he was how he was unsponsored and they said no that he's just gonna pay his way into western states and granted i think it's a lovely move for them there is also the and kind of you speak to the logistics of then going to western states staying up there the hoops your crew has to jump through there's totally. a lot going on so the, the fact that Aravipa is willing to help make that a possibility is just really fun to see in the sport yeah because logistically logistically like running western states with a crew requires so much kind of commitment both like from a time perspective as well as like financially just to put it like bluntly like housing in tahoe is not cheap right and then no. you know uh you're gonna have to find somewhere to stay in auburn and driving to these aid stations i think i probably spent like six or seven hours in a car on saturday oh, yeah. you know and i was like part of like a uh, two kind of car crew program so i can't imagine if if you're the only one supporting a runner driving to every aid station like that's exhausting to think about because a lot of the aid stations, as you said, like Robinson flat is involves like driving probably, you know, 90 minutes on these like backcountry roads and then like hopping into a shuttle. Um, Green gate is hard to get to. Uh, and, you know, parking at these aid stations isn't exactly like expansive. Um, no. So, yeah, I think, that's something that I've realized too in the past couple of years is like, you got to know what you're getting into if you decide to offer your services as a crew member or pacer or both. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a, the, my favorite nugget of wisdom was someone who like, I think, I believe both of us were on top of the escarpment for the yeah. first three and a half miles. And then uh, we'll, we were on the shuttle together on the way to Robin's flat, but I bumped into someone in the parking lot of Palisades kind of asking where the next aid station they could go to was. And I had to explain to them that the very next one you can reach is the absolute furthest one away from where we currently are. Like yeah. that whole logistic of driving down the highway to get to Auburn and then having to cut all the way back on the course. Like it, there's hoops to jump through and there's no cell service. So if you get lost, you're kind of screwed in a little bit of the sense. And even the two of us, like we, I bolted down from the top of the escarpment to uh, Robinson flat. And we still missed the male leaders like yeah. of 27 miles later. And um, yeah, it's definitely a logistical challenge. So uh, I can't imagine the golden ticket winners of black can or um, canyons having to go from less than two months out from the race to suddenly plan everything. That just sounds like right. a nightmare. Yeah. And we were on the shuttle with uh, Dakota, dakota's normal crew um going up to to robinson flat which is i think like 30 miles in and they they ended up missing him at that aid station so they took the shuttle that was like you know a 20 minute ride got up there and had to turn around and, and go back down the hill because they missed him which is just brutal um but that's oh, part yeah. of it right like something you kind of have to consider 
that's what is it that's i forget who had the quote that like that's show business like yeah it's uh it's just par for the course this weekend like, yeah just how it goes all right i have to ask you about the banana costume i saw you wearing because that was uh that blew up the internet for a little bit yes i think it was our mutual friend. Actually, the last podcast guest you had, Patty, had made a comment. It's like, you're probably the most photographed runner out there and you're not even running the race. Um, yeah, I just decided uh, at Forest Hill to put on a banana costume just just because I could. And uh, yeah, had a blast running around, at least bringing a smile to some people's faces. Um, I think one of the highlights of my day, I don't think she noticed, but was I was, I believe, watching... Ryan Montgomery come through Forest Hill, who another person to give a shout out to, they had a phenomenal race yeah. out there and really proved themselves to be one of the top athletes in the planet uh, at this distance. But they left the ultra tent and I turn around and to my surprise, like Courtney came just running, barreling down Forest Hill, like, oh, she's already here. And then I was kind of in her way and I was like, ah, and she kind of like made eye contact with me. Then I just reached out my hand for a high five and gave her a high five. And I don't know if she's expecting to just see a giant banana in front of her. But um, yeah, there's some made for some great pictures. Great fun. I'm wearing my banana polo shirt right now. So got to keep the theme alive. Yeah. There's so many eccentricities involved with this race too. Like the section I paced, you go through the Quarry Road aid station, uh, which is sponsored by Rogue Valley Runners, which is this great run specialty store in Ashland, Oregon that was started by Hal Kerner, who's won Western States a couple of times, I think, uh, or at least once. And they just have like Taylor Swift blasting as loud as they can and uh how always mans the aid station with scott jurek and they're just like taking pictures with people 90 miles into this race there's like disco lights all this kind of stuff and it's it's something like you know you don't really see in a lot of other sports or like races in our sport that like tend to be a little bit more like buttoned up and like self-serious um especially like compared to like a road marathon right like you don't get any of that it's all very you know, uh, kind of like more white collar. Um, but yeah, yeah. Our sport is full of like lovable weirdos and I like couldn't ask for anything more. One of my other highlights of the day, which in rewatching the live stream in bits and pieces yesterday and today was when Courtney was going across the river in the boat at Rucky Chucky and the like Mike picked up the conversation and it was whoever was manning the boat um telling her oh it must have been the training at bill and hillary's wedding or billy and hillary's wedding that got you like ready for this race she's like oh yeah and it's just like like this is the middle of the most iconic sporting event in the sport and they're just shooting the shit about a like wedding that they both went to and it's just that level of familiarity and comfort that's kind of just kind of it brings a smile to your face and makes you appreciate the characters in that sport that much more totally i also have to shout out uh the food at the the track the finish line uh that they were like shelling out all night i got there yeah again probably i think leah finished around like 10 30 this year and you know i probably had some nerds clusters and a few red bulls not a lot to eat because you're kind of just like you're thinking about the runner that you're supporting and making sure that they're eating and um i was conscious that i needed to take care of myself in order to like pace and stuff but you know it's it's hard to do both so i, I got to the track and 
after kind of the adrenaline wore off, I was like, oh man, I am so hungry. And went over to the food station and this like adorable, probably like nine-year-old with like AirPods in was like, good evening, sir. What would you like to eat tonight? And I was just like, what's going on? And I was like, well, what do you recommend? He's like, well, our quesadillas are fantastic. We also have vegetarian burritos, but I would recommend the quesadillas. And uh, yeah, he served me like a plate full of quesadillas and I like went back for seconds and was so content. Uh, and it's just like, I don't know, the fact that they do that and there's no expectations that you need to like Venmo them or like pay for that food is is really cool. And they're out there literally all night into the morning. Um, and I think it's like amazing that Placer High allows uh, this huge party every year, you know, like they don't have to do that at all. But it's just like it's become this kind of historical landmark now. Uh, in many ways and this year's the fifth, 50th running which is which is all that more cool oh yeah and even beyond the race production itself i think you have moments like the experience of running from roby point to the finish i think a lot of people who don't follow the race may not know that experience but hey it's just the mile 99 of any 100 mile race is going to be iconic and awe-inspiring but in particular you've gone from running down the narrow windy roads of the canyons for the last 30 something miles you go over no hands bridge which is just i think the amount of iconic landmarks that you just you say the name of something and even if you don't know what it is you know it comes from a state like if i just casually say michigan bluff or forest yeah. it's like people are like i don't i kind of know what that is devil's thumb and i feel like road yeah, it's like, I couldn't tell you where it is, but I know what it means um, to see, like, go from Ruby Point to the finish. You have gone from the trails to just the street in downtown or in Auburn. And instead of maybe some communities might get annoyed that there's this race that's shutting down traffic for the whole day, quite the opposite happens, which is people line the streets in their front yard with lawn chairs, beer coolers, speakers, chalk, and just just celebrate every single runner from the top finisher to the people just missing the cutoff. And I think one, uh, I have so many highlights from this year. Another one was going, uh, walking from the track to Roby Point itself to go cheer on another one of our mutual friends, David Lamb, who shout out for finishing his first 100 mile race. That was amazing to see, but it was maybe just before 8.30 in the morning after a lot of these people have been up all night and there's just this one guy with a beer cooler and his two kids and I see like a 12-pack of Rainier on the outside and they don't, Rainier is one of my favorite beers from college and they don't sell it in the Bay Area so I'm like, oh, that sounds so good and he's like, here man, take it and he just hands this stranger walking down the road uh, a beer at 8.30 in the morning and I was like, this, this just speaks volumes to the community that this race puts together because everyone in the area, I guess Auburn calls itself the endurance capital of the, the world. And you, some people might find that cheesy, uh, but it, in many ways, the town does really reflect that spirit of this crazy, stupid thing you guys are all doing. We're all here for it. It yeah. just brings people together. Yeah. And seeing people like bring their sleeping bags out into the infield of the track and like zonking out and kids staying up late to like two or three in the morning just couldn't be happier. Um, it also just like feels like iconically like summer, you know, like the sun doesn't set till 930 or so. And, uh, Auburn is, is so like hot and dry. It's, it's just like you get the scent, right. And like people are barbecuing. It's, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here? I could keep going on and on, but yeah, it's a, I think 
if you are a fan of ultra running and you have the ability to like mentally in your head block out the fourth weekend in june it's uh it's a can't miss spectacle and uh, i can't can't recommend it enough to people yeah and the i think the live stream for the entire event is like posted online so uh, if you want to get kind of a get a sense of like what we're talking about, uh, tune into that for for a handful of minutes. Corinne and Dylan do a great job of of keeping you entertained uh, because, admittedly, sometimes ultra running it can be hard to really stay engaged for that long. But um, I don't know they're they're consummate professionals. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, I think the only other thing I can shout out is uh, I am beyond honored to be the final person to see you get off the couch in a metaphorical sense so it's been a pleasure listening along and chatting appreciate that matt and uh yeah looking forward to to one day following you along in those trails sounds great man that's it for this edition of off the couch thanks to matt for the conversation thanks to justin bob for producing this episode and from everyone here at blister please take good care of yourself keep moving forward and we'll talk to you again next week